Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. We are the podcast for the Big Self School, and we offer classes, coaching, and books to help you rediscover your purpose and activate it in bigger ways. Kevin M. Johnson's work is on the recovery of the space outside of ego. So our work in Big Self swims in the same waters. Kevin is a teacher, retreat director, and co-host of the podcast Encountering Silence. Having spent years achieving a number of advanced degrees, speaking at large academic conferences, and even presenting at prestigious schools like Yale and Harvard universities, he discovered he needed to walk a bit outside the halls of the academy to explore deeper. Although he continues to teach at the university level, he now jokingly refers to himself as a recovering academic. I, he, can, I can identify with that. Yeah, me too, a little bit. He, he teaches online and in various settings outside the university that often crosses boundaries into spaces that are not currently on our cultural maps. Yeah, you are really going to get a lot out of this conversation. We're going in the realm of spirituality because Kevin is looking to recover a space for holistic wellness and wisdom and somewhere in the intersection of spirituality, psychology, wellness, we can say self-help and even philosophy, there is a space and it doesn't fit in easily on our current cultural maps. Let's see how you think we connect the dots in our conversation here with Kevin Johnson. Kevin Johnson, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. Hey, Kevin. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. Yes, I am too. We are too. You're you're kind of representing a different uh, a different approach than a lot of the people that are guests that we've had on so far. Uh, first of all, let's just ask you this: Why do you call yourself a recovering academic? <laughs> well, for fun, and because you know the academy you need to True. recover from. <laughs> you need to recover from it. Uh, I actually use it in two ways. I, I mean it. It's meant to be ambiguous. Um, so first way is that way of joking around. Um, I think there's something inherently, and we'll see in, as this conversation goes, I think there's something inherently missing in our uh, cultural constructs at the moment. And it's in everything. It's, I, don't, I don't blame anybody or anything. It's just the way our culture developed. And uh, part of that is what academic life has become is we have a particular model of the mind and how we think. And so because of that, I've been trained as an academic to think a certain particular way. And right. it's wonderful. It's, it is. It's wonderful, I think. But I, there's a missing piece. Mm -hmm. So my point is in saying, hey, uh, I want to do the best kind of thinking we have in the academy. I'm not against that. I, I'm, I'm about as best thinking can do. But I'm recovering from the kind of the broken story our culture tells about what it means to think, what wisdom is, etc. Mm -hmm. So I'm recovering from that. So and that plugs into the play that a lot of people think, you know, academics, ivory tower, you don't live in the real world. So I, I'm I'm joking around about that. But then there's the second piece. When I say recovering, I'm an I'm an academic type that wants to recover things that we lost. So Ooh. I want I want to pick up stuff that our culture just walked away from and that I think we are now starting to realize in the academic world, in like you see it in neuroscience, you see it in different places, hey, some of that stuff that we rejected originally 
thinking that was bad thinking or superstition or something, we're starting to realize, no, hold on a second, hold the phone. There might be some really good stuff there. And so I'm talking about trying to recover those things. So mm. it, it's got the ambiguity of, on one level, laughing and joking around at academics and saying, hey, get your head out of the clouds and there's some brokenness there. And then, hey, there's some great stuff that we need to recover. So I'm, wow. that's what I mean. A, tr- a true uh, poetic and academic kind of response right there. No, I like <laughs> the layers I of can, meaning. I resonate with that. And Chad, I know you do. Um, and, and my thinking is always, you know, kind of thinking of myself, I guess, a little bit of a bridge between mm-hmm. a lot of kind of the level of research and the depth of studies that happen inside the academy. Yes. But that, so, I mean, the vast majority of people live outside that. And so how do yes. we build a bridge between this, this knowledge um, that's happening, this accumulation of knowledge that I, you know, especially psychology and mental health and yep. um, these spiritual concepts that I know we're going to talk about, how do we pull that out of the academy? Yes. In a really experiential way for people that don't have access to it or don't want access to it um, to think about some of the things. So I want to I want to dig into some of your work around um, when I was reading and looking at what you have studied and what you're talking about, this this concept of knowledge versus wisdom Mm -hmm. is really strong in your work. You know, knowledge is not necessarily wisdom. Those are not the same thing. Um, and you've kind of, you've had a deep study of that. So I'd love for you to talk in, talk about the mental map that we currently comprehend learning and wisdom. And you talked about it as you were in your intro a little bit, kind of this brokenness around that. So if you could walk us through, what do you mean when you say a mental map? Um, and what is the difference between how we're thinking about these things today versus, you know, age old philosophers and kind of the traditions that we come from. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's really kind of, I try to give some basic dates to like to guide us, but again, right, yeah, you know, perfect. but generally speaking, I always tell people when I do this, I really appreciate what you just said about this bridging to the general public, um, because I don't want to get so detailed here. I want to just generally give outlines. We can get into the details. We can be very highly academic at other points, but just to get the ball rolling, you know, and so I tell people, don't hold me to these dates. Like I'm giving you (laughs) the definition of everything. So, yeah. So, um, so generally speaking, I say that our culture really, really shifted in the West specifically, um, Western civilization really, really shifted about 600 years ago. Uh, it happened a little bit before that, but around 600 years ago. So uh, the be- beginning of what we call the modern period, where we start to get into, quote, modern philosophy, like Rene Descartes onwards, um, and a lot of things that happened there. And before that, in the medieval period and in the ancient period, uh, in the West, we had a very different model of the mind. And that's really kind of it. What do you mean by mind? What do you mean by thinking? What do you mean by consciousness, awareness, understanding, knowing, all those words, you know, so the fancy term in philosophy is epistemology. Mm-hmm. How do you know when you know something and when it's not just an opinion or not just some thought, random thought, how do you know it's knowledge? How do you define knowledge? In the ancient world, uh, there was a sense of, and again, I try to be very gentle about this because I'm not dogmatic, but just to give us a, a frame in the ancient world, 
there was kind of, and it's kind of wrong as I say it, so it makes me cringe, so I apologize, but it's kind of right. Um, there's kind of two ways of knowing. Ugh, I don't like it, but I'll go with it. Two ways <laughs> of knowing um, in the sense that there was a kind of knowing that's done where you use words, ideas, you think, you use logic, you use math. Um, this is kind of ratio, right, where we get the word rational, uh, okay, dianoia. Yeah. Uh, so where you'd get the word diagnostic. So it's a kind of knowing that that's our culture. That's what we think of as knowing. And wisdom for us is somebody who has a lot of this knowledge and develops it and we cultivate it and we get good at thinking and we get good at analysis and et cetera. And they had that in the ancient world. They're like, yes, super important. But the highest form of knowing, if anybody who reads ancient philosophy, anything before medieval all the way back, uh, the highest form of knowledge was kind of something else. It was kind of where we would use words like the intellect. Uh, a Greek word that we used was nous, N-O-U-S. Um, it was a kind of arresting, a sitting in, a contemplating. It was actually silence. The high, the, the high apex of the mind, uh, they used to even say that was, there was a part of the mind that rested in the wisdom. And so you see this, for instance, I give the example of Plato's allegory of the cave. Plato talks about this idea, uh, you know, that, hey, the mind, consciousness, goes to, quote, the world of the forms. There's actually another place that the mind can travel to and see reality as it really is. And resting in the world of the forms in this other realm is really the highest kind of knowing. That's how you know. Any kind of really thinking that makes us kind of engaged in our bodies here, uh, he saw as lower. That was actually opinion. It was, so it wasn't. It wasn't even really thinking. It wasn't. You didn't do thinking until your mind went to this other place, this silent kind of apex. And all religions of the West uh, broke and used. You know, broke out of that. You know, used the ancient way of thinking. Um, so whether it's Jewish or Islamic or Christian, they use the highest form of thinking to talk about this stuff. And so the divine, the ultimate reality, truth, is in the realm of silence, is in the realm beyond. And there's a part of consciousness that our mind can rest in. What happened about 600 years ago was we, you know, you really can't prove that. Right? If you, how do I prove that consciousness right. is going to another realm and, and, and doesn't using Occam's razor, that seems like, why do I have to think of, quote, another realm? Why is there another world? I see no evidence of it. Cut it out. We don't need to think that way. And so we focused and changed very differently. We started to move in very different directions. Now we talk about neurons firing and chemistry, and, you know, and I get, I'm, I'm not against any of that. But what's interesting is that's the different model now. We have a model that is, instead of uh, talking about resting in a, a, a space of wonder, because philosophy begins in wonder. Mm -hmm. that, that was the ancient philosophers. Was That's how you become wise, is in this space. And wonder is that moment where your mind stops and just rests. It's like, wow. <sighs> Hey, yeah. this I, is awesome stuff. Let, let before we go to just six hundred years ago. Like, I, one thing <laughs> I'm inspired by your thinking is so Seneca. You know, like yeah. 
Like he, I wonder if the practical, the pragmatism comes a little bit from Roman influence because, you know, we do mistake that kind of philosophy of those Stoics with um, a real pragmatism. I mean, Seneca was basically personal development and self-help just, uh, you know, a long time ago, right? Well, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because you're saying that it's, I find it fascinating. I'm glad, actually, I'm glad you raised this. It's Seneca and the Stoicism's having its moment, right? I mean, it's really popular now in business circles and in self-help circles. And everybody's like, oh my God, the Stoics get it right. And again, I love that. It's absolutely right. But here's my catch, uh, Chad. Uh, Look at what model of the mind are we using to study Seneca? We're using a contemporary model of the mind. We're we're assuming that they thought the way we thought. And now you're seeing, are they translating it correctly? Because I would push back. Seneca and them, yes, they're very practical and self-help. But Stoics also had a sense of noose. Stoic also had a, what they called logos. There was a right. rationality and a certain reason in the universe a particular way. And so are we translating it into our view and mix missing things up? This is what I'm saying. The model of the mind is very different. It's very anachronistic to read Seneca with a modern lens and say, here's what Seneca's saying. You actually have to put the ancient model of the mind on. You have to get, hey, ancient Greeks and ancient Romans were thinking this way, and they had a sense of logos, and they had a sense of noose, and they were in dialogue with Plato. Were they pushing against Plato? Were they accepting Plato? Did they understand Plato? It's very possible you can make an argument. A Stoic philosopher can come on here and tell me, hey, they pushed hard against Plato. They rejected that idea. Okay, good, if you're going to ground that in that. But it's really interesting that there's all these modern like self-help gurus reading stoicism saying it's the greatest thing but they're using the modern model of the mind they think the word mind in stoicism is is the same way as the word we use mind now it's anachronistic mind meant something different back then yeah so in the thing the challenge you know is is, is i'm listening to you and i'm even, i'm thinking right? <laughs> well, this is all thinking this is great we should be doing yeah that. and i'm i'm struggling with words like it's really yep. isn't it even as our listeners are listening to this it's like how do you it's almost thinking and non-thinking yep. and so how do you communicate um, this higher view of wisdom, the higher, highest form of learning and, and wisdom, really. Right. Yeah. And, no. And, okay. And so my response then is this is why you have religion. And um, if you, well, you don't even have to do religion. Let's just stay in philosophy for a second. Religion is definitely here, but let's stay in philosophy. I find it very fascinating. I teach philosophy um, at university. As an, I'm an adjunct. I teach religion. I teach philosophy. And I often teach philosophy at uh, university level. And what's always fascinating to me is I'm hanging around my philosophy colleagues. Everybody will read Plato. Everybody will read, you know, Socrates. We'll go through these things. And everybody uses contemporary view of the world. And they take Plato and they read him like he's this hardcore rationalist who's doing kind of logic and blah, 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 blah in a very particular way. And yes, that's happening. But what I find really fascinating is my colleagues don't read the text that I read. I'll go in and I'll say, hey, did you notice in the Socratic dialogue that you read, you skipped, you assigned the pages that were all about logic, but you skipped mm. the next page where it was all mythology. Mm. And it's in the mm. exact same text. And that's what I want to say is myth and l- allegorical language and metaphor is how you talk about the realm that can't be talked about the silence, the quiet. And that's what happens in religion. 
And what's really fascinating to me is our culture, this is why I say 600 years ago, we have a very literal read of religion now. The, the ancient cultures didn't do it this way. Yeah. Um, we very much, the ancients used to know that when you were talking and you told a story about God or whatever, you were talking about something that was way beyond words, is ineffable. You know, that, that, yeah, I mean, and so the, you, it was mystical. It was something beyond. And so all you did was you say, well, it was like this. And you do an analogy and a metaphor because that kind of language allows you to kind of what metaphor and analogy does is it gives you a taste, a sense. It gives you as if you were there, but it doesn't actually give you a definition. It doesn't box you in. There's a lot of freedom and openness. So this is the, the joy yeah. of it. If, if I say to you, hey, it's like this, I can, I can evoke a feeling inside you. And then you say, okay, I get a sense of this feeling. And I'm like, okay, go with that. Go with that, right? I'm giving right. you an embodied sense of what that is, but I'm not defining it as an idea. Wow, that's awesome. And of course, speaking of words, you know, we we go to creeds and it's like you have to yep. like, you know, uh, yes, I believe in in these exact words. But yep. um and that does seem very, very like a modern type of yeah, that doesn't feel free. It's and, almost like checking boxes. Yes. Yeah. It's a template. Reduce it to, yeah, template. But or, I will say so speaking of our modern mind, there's a lot of good things about our like, you know, new totally. Yeah, it's doing some cool things like neuroscience with our brains and we're like yep. studying things and we're yeah, we're like proving the validity of of the power of meditation and stuff. Yep. Um but so but like are well, are you finding are people are they hungry for for these new approaches to self-understanding? Yeah. I mean, and I think this is exactly it. Uh, that I you nailed it. Um I think people understand there's a part of reality. Our culture has set us up in a particular way and we're all trying to fit in a box. Everybody's making us go into templates and everything because of your work. Um, you're on, we're on our screens, our jobs, our schooling, our educational systems, our political systems, our family systems, because we have a certain model of the mind and we say, this is what a human being is and this is how you're supposed to be, fit in this box. And we know there's a huge piece, the silent kind of quiet, ineffable part the transcendent part of the human being, the part that's outside of the ego, the part that can't control the world, that is an essential part of what it means to be a human being is left out of our cultural maps. And we even places like religion and stuff, which used to be the space of mystery, like we're going into mystery, we're, we're exploring. No, we don't have mystery anymore. Now we have it explained. We know exactly, we have dogma and def definitions. We know exactly who God is and who this is and what we're supposed to do. And so people feel like there's something missing. And so you feel this natural gravitation. You see them running out like, hey, give me meditation. Hey, I did this yoga thing. And in the middle of yoga, I had this whacked out experience that no one's talking about. And I know I'm not crazy or am I crazy? Yeah. You know? and, and so you see more and more of this because they know there's a piece of our map missing. And so they're, they're reaching out for that. And so, yeah, I 100 I percent, Chad. This is the hard part for me. Thinking mind wants to do a yes or no, black or white. I just came and right. said, hey, our model of the mind's broken. And so then automatically we were like, oh, get rid of the modern world. No, 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 no. I want to <sighs> keep everything that we've learned and I want to get better at it and I want to keep getting better at it. I just want to recover the piece that got left behind and add it to what we already know. Right. Whoa. That's, and that's, that's what I want. Awesome. 
And I have to say, just real quickly, in the middle of all this, you are doing a brilliant job at not using academic jargon. <laughs> I'm trying, trying, trying my best. <laughs> I'm recovering. So, yeah. yeah. So you, you and I share. Um, we you, you we share an affinity for silence. I mean, this is the crux of your work, and I, right. um, I also am. Um, I don't know how to categorize what, like, cause it is, it's hard to articulate exactly. what happens, you know, silence is a conduit and it's hard to really articulate what happens, um, in the experience of silence for people that, that don't practice it. Right. And so I really want to dive into this work. You're the co-host of the Encountering Silence podcast, um, yep. This is a, this is not a flashy topic that a lot of people are like, yeah, let me, like, I don't, <laughs> don't know that they crave silence. I think we're, right. so I, so I want to just. Yeah. You feel like you're in the library and people are telling you to hush. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So there's something else that's happening for us in this practice, this practice of silence. Right. Uh, I would love for you to talk about that. Um, talk about what you've discovered and, and what, yeah, what does happen to us when we, when we're allowing ourselves to be in that space and receptive to, to some other way of thinking and being. Yeah. So, Oh God, this conversation, that just that question. Yeah. It's such a good one because that question, you know, we could talk for four days. I, let me, so the encountering silence podcast, I co-host we've, you know, we started this, it's been over three years now. And uh, I'm with two of really dear friends and we approached the topic of silence. And like you said, it's not really sexy. It's not the kind of podcast that's going to get million, millions of downloads a week because people see that and they scroll by like, what, silence? But it is essential. It is essential because of what that first part of the conversation we've already had. Silence allows for that space of that higher knowing, that contemplate, the word contemplate. Um, we use meditate now. Uh, that that's kind of influenced by the East because they use the word. It's interesting in the West, the words are used East and West use the words oppositely um, in the East. They meditate means silent and contemplate means think. And in the West, it's the exact opposite. Meditate means yeah. think contemplate means silence. Um, so yeah. So contemplation or meditation, if you're using the Eastern term or the, the popular kind of term now that's out on the marketplace, um, it allows for us to get out of the thinking that happens and to be really deeply embodied, really profoundly present to what is. And then instead of what happens when you think is thinking, you, it's a very limited bandwidth. You have a very narrow focus. I, here, here's an example. May, let me give you an analogy. Maybe this will help. Let's all imagine like can I do like a small little exercise here for us? Yes. Please. Oh yeah. Okay. So I don't know where you guys are sitting, um, but do you, can you, where are you in a room? Are you looking out a window? Do you have space? Can you look away from the computer screen and look? Yes, we can. Okay. Well, we closed off our windows. So the sound is better. Yeah, totally. So look far, you can keep your mouth near the microphone so you can talk, but stare off as far away from you as you can. All right. And what I want you to try to do now, and anybody who's listening, if they could do this, just look far away. If you're looking out a window, that's great. Or if you're looking across the room, look as far away from you as you can. And then what you want to do is I want you to right now try, and it's a little hard, so try. I want you to try to see everything in your frame of reference, up, 
down, left, right. I want as wide as you can. I don't want you to focus on one thing. Try to get a picture of everything in one shot. Mm -hmm. Take a second to do that. And everything should be blurry because you can't really Mm -hmm. focus on anything. So see everything. Okay. Now, if I say to you, what do you see? If you you respond... Oh, I would, gotcha. you know, we're looking out a window and I see um, a lot of trees and okay, uh, stop. stop right there. See what happens? You said you looked out a window and you saw trees. Now, when you said you saw trees, did everything else that was in your line of sight disappear? Yeah. Yeah. Because you looked and narrowed your focus down to trees, right? Now, if I said, don't look at the trees, but look at everything at once, what's up above the tree, what's below the tree, what's to the left of the tree, you should be able to see all that stuff, right? That's the difference we're saying. When you think and you're in your ego, you narrow focus down into one small little area and you focus on that and you give it a word and you talk about it. And it's as if the rest of the world disappears, but that's a trick of the mind. The rest of the world didn't disappear. It's still there. So these are the two moments. Resting in silence is allowing everything to be there without you labeling it, talking about it and everything. So you're aware of it all. So there's the broad, wide, huge 360 degree awareness. And then there's the narrow focused, I'm looking at trees. And (laughs) And it's such this contradictory thing too, for me in silence. And it's something that I try to cultivate in my life, not daily. I wish I did have a silence practice more daily, but it is because you just said the word embodied. Yep. And that to me is a piece of this. So, so there is this expansive kind of recognition of space and life and, you know, everything bigger beyond me, but there's also this like deeply like grounding embodied thing that happens. And I don't know if it's for, you know, as head and heart types, there's something about silence that pulls us into ourselves, but there is like something equally as powerful. So it is expansive, but it's also like, um, very constricting too. And in a, in a good way, a safe way, like I am here and I'm grounded and I have a body and um, so, yeah, so that's that really weird experience of both. And, and, you know, to even go further is when you're actually silent, you're, that's when you're in reality, right? I don't think we ever really recognize that thinking is kind of our map. It's our words. It's, it's kind of like our description about reality, superimposed over reality. When you let go of your description, all that's left is the real what actually exists in reality without, you know, and sometimes you don't know what's out there and you can't label it. Right. I mean, there's no way. So you're allowing for the presence of all things and it's safe. So that's, that's the, I really appreciate what you just said there. Cause it is safe. It is a safe space for you to be fully you yeah. when you're in, you'll notice that when you think we all do this, every single one, including myself, we all sit down and we think about ourselves and there are parts of ourselves we don't like. Right. Um, we've either been trained not to like it. Uh, we've been either shamed into that, or maybe we picked up the hab- the voice in our heads of like maybe somebody who was critical. Maybe I was bullied as a kid. And so now the voice of the bully lives in my head. Or maybe my parents were really critical of me. And now I'm critical of myself in the world. And so there's a, you know, whatever way we've picked up this voice somewhere that's very critical about ourselves. 
and is always kind of saying, well, I, you know, I should lose a few pounds or I shouldn't think this way, or I'm not good looking or I'm or whatever. There's some voice talking about parts of us that we don't like. When you get silent, you actually are embracing every part of you and saying, no, you're, you're accepted here. Mm-hmm. You're allowed well, here. So this is, this is really good stuff. Yeah. We sometimes call that the inner critic. Some people say maybe right. it's our, our shadow side. Right. Um, and, but, and I love the idea of you saying um, silence is basically reality. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I register with that. And yet immediately I'm like also thinking, well, a lot of us don't want to confront or really be real or be right. you know, authentic. So I have a question before. So I do, I think that everyone, our listeners would love to, you know, have specific ways. How do you cultivate that habit of silence in our lives? Um, But even before we go there, like, I think a more fundamental question is just what makes us ready for silence? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) God. (laughs) I should have have known that when I came on here, you were going to ask me these unbelievably great questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, here's the hard part. I mean, I, so it's, I'll say it this way. You, we come on the planet ready for silence. We're trained away from it. Mm. So you'll notice if you think about it, when you're born, you can't speak and you don't think, right? And if you do child psychology and you do developmental yeah. psych, um, what we do is how do you approach the world? You approach the world embodied. You crawl on it. You smell it. You taste it. You balance. You move. You explore. And you're wide open. You're wide open. And then we're told. We're trained. And this is what I said. This is why it's really important to model the mind. Think about what we do to kids. You Right at the eight, we put them in around four or five years old. We make them sit at desks and we say, focus, think, do. And you basically are training them to do a kind of particular awareness and consciousness. Again, I'm a fan of that particular way of consciousness. Thinking is important and it's essential. But what we do is there's no part of our culture then we basically train out of ourselves the natural kind of play, exploration, curiosity, creativity that all human beings come on the planet with to be embodied and to be open. And you only can do that in silence. And then we don't have places in culture that allow for this. Again, Mm -hmm. ancient culture, I'm not trying to romantic, again, please do not. Everybody wants to do this. I do as well. I'm not romanticizing ancient culture. I'm not saying, hey, it was awesome back, you know, so long ago. I'm not asking, but notice this. In ancient culture, in ancient culture, it was built that there were silent places. Go back before civilization, before we had writing and before we had cities, what we know from anthropology and everything else who study like hunter-gatherer societies, etc. Think about what it would mean to survive as a human being. In order to survive, you'd had to hunt, you had to fish, you had to weave your clothes, you had to do certain things. Think about all the embodied work and all the silent downtime. When you fish, if you're loud, you scare the fish away. You have to be quiet. If you hunt, you scare the animals away. You have to be quiet. When you weave, it's almost meditative in the moment of sewing and weaving. and, And right, We did embodied things and knew the world deeply, profoundly. We knew the woods. We knew the leaves. We knew the sky. We knew when it was going to rain. You knew things from your body, and that's how you explored. And so we are built for this. We're trained out of it. And that's my point, is for mm-hmm. wellness purposes, 
and stuff. We need to figure out how to add that back in. We used to need it to survive. Now our tools do all that work for us. I can press a, you know, I don't have to hunt. I can call Uber Eats, you know, and sit on my couch and stream Shit's Creek all night, you know, and not have to get up ever. And it, it, this, that's where we're at. So I don't have to be embodied. I can be caught in my mind thinking and planning and, you know, and entertaining myself with screens uh, in, in such ways that we'd have to go out of our way for this. Yeah, it's a and, totally different type of magic. I mean, like our right. products appear at our front doorstep. Right, right. Yeah. And so, I mean, and so it's interesting to me. I always say to people, you're, you know, like, what do we have to do? And it's kind of funny, like centuries ago, you didn't have to go to the gym to get exercise because just surviving, we walked so many miles, we did so many things. Now yeah. you actually go to the gym because you need to, because our culture has arranged it that it's very possible you don't move at all. So the same thing here is you didn't have to arrange for silent time or meditation or anything. That hmm. happened after we kind of went into the kind of the cities and literature and we started doing more and more technology. Then you needed these downtime moments, you know, these quiet moments that used to be built into what it meant to be a, an embodied human being on the planet. And that's, that's what we miss. We don't realize these things also, by the way, your mind does it every day. That's what I want to tell everybody. Unless you have a major mental illness, a major mental illness, your mind is flowing in and out of silence all day long. It happens. So we go quote offline. Anybody who's, you know, you've done it and people have caught it and you've caught people. You ever see those people, the staring off into space, um, daydreaming, we call it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, if you ever sat down and think about daydreaming for a second, why, look at that person or think about yourself. Where were you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do actually think about that. Right? Maybe I'm weird. No, right. But where I, I, I think I'm weird like you morning, too. Right before yeah. coffee, Shelly. <laughs> right. Where, so you go where, think about it. You're wide awake and your mind is not thinking anything. And somebody says to you, what's, what are you doing? Nothing. And they're like, yeah, but you're just staring off. Was I? And look, it's, that's what I, I call it the blind spot of the mind because these are blink and you miss it moments, but our minds are want these times where we're disengaged, not thinking. And the neuroscience now is, 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 is uh, proving this out that like long-term memory happens when you let go of information and it sets and it sits this, that famous story, sleep on it. You know, like yeah. it's yeah. that's how you remember things. If you held on to it in short term memory, you can't. It disappears. So if you want it to go to long term memory, you let go of it and you disappear and you forget about it. And it's it's the kind of the silence and the quiet. This is how the mind works. Mm -hmm. And yet our, we're starting to see that now. Our culture is starting to see that. But for so long, uh, for a good few hundred years, we had this attitude of like it was all about words, ideas, thinking templates, recipes, you know, if we could just snap our finger, our culture still does it. Seven mm -hmm. top 10 hacks, you know, to be the most right. successful, whatever. Yeah. Um, you can't hack a successful life. You know, I, yeah. that's why I, I don't always feel like I, I, don't, feel like <laughs> I don't know. It's really going to be bubble. disappointing yeah. to our yeah. audience. So I want to say this real quick. Just um, when I was in graduate school, so I went to Wheaton College yep. out of Chicago and um, one of my professors, and I cannot remember which class, but he made the offer to the whole class that he would pay for our lunch um, if we agreed to do a silent lunch with him. Awesome. So, but here's the thing, like nobody took him up on it. And he yeah. said in all of his years of teaching, and he'd been teaching, 
you know, for a very long time, he could count on two hands, how many people took him up on that. Right. And I remember like feeling so intrigued by that. Like it, you know, the, the competitor in me wouldn't be like, well, I'm going to be one of those. (laughs) (laughs) But I was so, I was afraid. I was like, that is too close. That's too intimate. That's too vulnerable. I, I can't sit there and not say anything. And I think a lot of us feel that way. There's this intimacy, whether it's with another person in silence, like it's very rare that I can be silent with someone. There has to be so much trust there right? and, or intimacy in with ourselves. Which is weird if you think about it. Right. It should, should be easy to be quiet. No. Maybe for some people it is, but I, I think a lot of people it's, it's not easy. Actually, you no, know, come to think of it, now that you're saying that, Shelly, like I'm thinking about like whenever you're like in a car ride with someone and you feel like you have to kind of fill the silence constantly. And mm-hmm. if there's this moment of like nobody saying anything for 10 seconds, then it, we're like, well, I guess we'll turn the radio on. Right, right. right. You got to right. feel it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, no one can just be, it's, it's interesting. Like why? Like why can't we just rest? There's nothing, you know, we just rest. We feel... Well, and that's ego, right? And I just I just wrote down and I'm I'm gonna write a blog post on this because I you just made me think of this. Silence is where we both meet the ego. Yep. The critic, the like not enoughness, gotta do this, gotta check that box. But it's also the space where we get to put it down. Right. Like and be safe within ourselves. And I think that is what maturity does, or at least to right. me. Like when I was twenty-five or six, whatever, how old I was in graduate school my ego would not let me put that stuff down in silence. It was too activated. But now at 46, I have learned and developed some skills or at least just some ease maybe with myself, like to put that, to put that stuff down. (laughs) Like when I'm by myself. Right. And I think that's part of maybe how we get ready for silence. We have to remember, uh, like you're saying, remember reconnect with the essence like we're not all we're not ego we're not all ego that's right that's i mean that's i'm glad you said that because that's exactly it here's what i would say to people what what silence actually allows us to see um and and this is an essential piece i always tell people you are more than you think and i mean that literally Mm -hmm. yeah ego people really identify that ego equals me. And what I want to tell people is ego is a piece of you. It's the calculating, thinking, planning part of you that is mm-hmm. really helpful. And God, it's it's helpful. But it isn't you it's a piece of you. It's kind of like it, it's it's like one tool in your toolbox. Yeah. You know, I mean, and so silence actually shows that there is something bigger than the ego and it's still you and yet you don't know what it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) right so and so that's why i appreciated when i stumbled upon your website and i saw it's a big self school and you said something about the you know outside the ego and that's exactly my point is i want to tell people that you are bigger than ego you are more than ego and that if you sit in silence that mystery of who am i ego is a piece of me and it's a helpful piece of me, but it is not all of me. And so in silence, we will discover this other place. And so this is the thing, 
the hard part for me is everything in our culture, you know, think about, let's just do the United States of America, you know, in the pursuit of happiness kind of thing. It's this attitude of like individuals achieving our goals, you know, go to work, be successful, go to school, get your degree, do these things. And it's all ego based in the sense of I do something and we identify with ego. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but even self-help, self-help, how do I achieve happiness? How do I act it? And I'm like, you don't achieve happiness. It, uh, happiness can't be achieved. In fact, they've done the psychological studies. The more you pursue happiness, the more it runs away from you. It's a paradox. You, happiness shows up when you let go of it. As you said, mm-hmm. when you put it down, it's called the paradox of intention. Yeah, uh, the, It's this idea of the more you want it, you know, it's bad. So how do you achieve your goal? You let go of your goal and then you achieve it. And mm-hmm. that seems paradoxical, but that's how it works. How yeah, do you yeah. fall? How do you fall asleep at night? If you're an insomniac, I've suffered from insomnia on and off all my life. If I try to go to sleep, if I try, I'm up all night. How do you fall asleep? You distract yourself. You count sheep. You do something else. You forget that you're trying to fall asleep. And all of a sudden, sleep takes you. You achieve your goal by giving up your goal. Yeah, similar to even like trying to remember a dream. If you try to remember your dream, you won't. It it eludes you. But you can. How about word on the word on the tip of the tongue? Yeah. Um, well, so speaking of paradoxes, you know, we've been com- to give a little context, I guess, to our, our current collective situation is we are, you know, coming out of this isolating experience, more or less for most of us of being in a, right. a year long global pandemic. And, you know, so I think that we're, we're, we're starved for community, but there might be opportunities of creating ways of, of shared experiences and encounters um, you know, so how can, you know, through this new idea of, how, you know, like trying to refine ourselves or, and ways of knowing through encounter and experience, how can we, Kevin, cultivate that? Would you say now, what do you, what have you been telling people over the past several months? Yeah. So it's interesting on the podcast, uh, Encountering Silence, we had a guest on who said that we're going to come out of the pandemic more individualized and more communal at the same time. And I thought that's exactly right. There's a sense that we've now doubled down and we've hid. And so now we feel kind of quiet within ourselves. And some of us are even a little skittish, like, should I go back out? Is it safe? Uh, Other people are like, you know, it was easier when I was by myself. The crowds are annoying. Other people, you know, and then at the same time, we want community. Um, You know, other people... So it's going to be this really interesting thing. So what we've been talking about on Encountering Silence and what I say, I work with my brother in wellness areas, um, dealing with kind of embodiment and silence and um, the body, et cetera, exercise, diet, et cetera. Um, What I just try to get them to do is I say an easy, easy, easy way to do this is really just spend some time outside Um, going. I tell people, go for a walk go for hikes, go to the shore and listen to the ocean. And what happens is that nature kind of naturally attracts our attention and pulls us out of ourselves because of the beauty of it and the kind of the quiet of the birds and the wind blowing. And and so just being out in those kind of settings actually can allow your heart rate to drop and your mind to rest and be present in the beauty around you. And that just simple stages of going for a walk Um, without earbuds in your ears and not looking at a screen 
And just spending some time just outside and doing that is a very good first step to kind of like start, get back into your body, start to move and start letting your consciousness be pulled into reality. Let it sit here. Let it be present here. Um, we don't have to do that. You know, we, we can spend all day indoors and a lot of times we run, we'll go outside, but like, you know, listening to our podcasts as we're running outside or whatever, but you're not really outside. You're listening to your podcast, uh, you know? Yeah. So I, I say things like, you know, spend some time outdoors, um, notice a lot of sensory stuff. You, if you can spend just like 30 seconds of noticing kind of what do you hear and go kind of go, what do I see? What do I hear? What do I smell? And just do, it sounds so silly and trite, but it really does begin to give you the sense of just being present in a way that's not thinking. It's moving toward a feeling. It's moving toward how your body approaches reality as opposed to your mind kind of trying to label and control everything. And so just those kinds of things. And then I also, you know, we know this from good, this is good science and this is really basic. I tell people, like, if you can just do a little bit of like, diaphragmic breathing, you know, focus on a kind of deepening your breath, slowing down and focusing on that will start to bring you down. It starts to uh, stops the fight and flight kind of thing. It brings us, you know, stimulates the parasympathetic and we start to get into this kind of quieting of the mind. Um, and so th those kind of basic practices, which seems so almost kindergarten childlike, I'm telling you, go for a walk outside and take a deep breath. But really, it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. just starting to do those things will start moving us in the right direction. Well, putting that in context with uh, just like how we've been talking about experiential knowledge um, does make a lot of sense. You know, I think it, 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 it registers more than just saying, what's one mindfulness you know, practice? Right, right, right. I know that you you had one of my teachers, Parker Palmer, on your yes. Podcast. He doesn't know he's one of my teachers. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mention him almost every podcast that we have on, and I want to just read a quote, and you'll know this quote because this is one of his popular ones. But it it makes me think of what you're saying. Uh, he says the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is to go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge and out of the corner of an eye will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. So I wanted to share that with yes. everybody as we close out. Yeah, that's, I remember that. Yes. That is, that's a good one. Yeah, we've loved uh, Let Your Life Speak for a long time. Yeah, he, um, he is he's just a rock star. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's phenomenal in so many ways. Um, but yeah. yeah, given what you know, the, there's such simplicity oh. to just, you know, walk through the woods. You know, for me, it's often just sitting on my back porch. I talk about that a lot. And I, yeah. um, you know, that space to just kind of meet yourself, meet your soul there is, is, um, it's, it is ineffable. Like, I don't know how to talk about it. And right. I think there is something about, we, we can't teach this stuff, but we can, we can hold, hold people when they come out of brokenness, they come out of confusion or a pandemic, create space to let them, you know, land in a soft place. And so these are the practices I think that 
you can't teach anybody, but they're certainly there when they're willing to pick them up. Right. Right. Yeah. And I would say that uh, for, for um, our listeners who might want to deep dive into silence, man, you guys have found a niche. I mean, it is encountering silence is about silence and something else every time. It's and a beautiful you, podcast. Yeah, you've been doing it for a so while. Much. Yeah. Uh, well, how else can they um, get in touch, Kevin? Well, um, an easy way to get a hold of me. I'm just a, just starting to get online. I'm building a website right now called The End of Words, and it's not out yet, um, but that will be coming pretty soon. And I have um, I have a course, uh, kind of a free course that anyone can take that kind of talk walks through some of this stuff, talks about models of the mind, does stuff that people I'm creating that will be released and they can see. Uh, and so if they want to stay in touch and kind of see as I start to release more things and the other things. Thing I'm doing. I'm working with my brother in a wellness, kind of a holistic wellness that does silence in the body, and it's called Wild Therapeutics. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to be doing that kind of stuff. So if anybody wants that, the way to stay in touch right now is kind of go to kevinmichaeljohnson.com, and there is a sign-up sheet there that's kind of like sign up for my email list. That's like, hey, do you want to get this course? Yeah. Uh, and it's going to be a free course, and it will get you into my world, and you can see whenever I release things. Or they can definitely go to uh, EncounteringSilence.com, listen to the, all the episodes, because uh, there are so many resources. We've treasure trail. Yeah. You know, books and articles and lists of all the great people. So, yeah, and on your website too, it does look like it's got all your social, oh, your social oh, media platforms. What happened? Well. I'm sorry about that. I don't know if you heard that, but something was starting to run for me. Uh oh. No, you're good. Okay, yeah. good. I didn't know. But so, I'm sorry if I cut you off, but all of a sudden on my end, of like a commercial popped up. I must have had a, a tab open that I was unaware of. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no irony there when we're talking about our, our bleep and our beeps and our <laughs> notifications going off. We let it all be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, man, I just tell, tell you what, I thank you so much for your generosity of time, your wisdom and insights. Um, we had no idea, you know, just how academic this might have gotten. And I actually do feel like I've been transported. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I And I appreciate, please, you know, spread the word. I, I'm so happy to that you guys are doing work where, you know, you're looking outside the ego, you're doing the big self. That really is really where I'm at, um, that we need to tell people that there's some larger aspect of who we are as people and that there's all this potential that's untouched if we just follow the cultural maps that have been handed to us that just don't talk about it. So That was beautifully said. Could not have said it better. Thank you for being here, for sharing your wisdom and your work. Um, and I definitely, yeah, this could have been a four-day long conversation. I'm having we left, to- we left so much on the table. 48 minutes. Yes, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you so much. This episode was brought to you by Big Self School. If you've been a part of our growing community from around the globe, 54 countries by last count, We love your presence and are so glad you are listening. I hope that the process is making a difference in your life. We have one small ask that will make a big difference. If you would be so kind as to help our online visibility by giving us a review on Apple iTunes, we would be deeply grateful. Your support in this one small way 
will make a big difference. So we thank you in advance, and we will see you next week.